Gonzaga Nation SI, I'm your host, Dan Dickow, with another episode where we bring uh, a little bit of a different perspective on things related to college basketball, Gonzaga-centric. Today's guest, someone who has a ton of uh, experience in the NIL space, even though it's only about two years old or so now, uh, he's an author, he's a college athlete advocate, he's someone who has a lot of knowledge uh, and I think that will kind of open people's eyes if you listen to the entirety of this conversation. Uh, someone who is a UCLA and USC fan, if you can get that one straight, if you live in Southern California, I don't know. I don't live down there, but maybe he can explain that a little bit himself. It's Mark Eisenberg. Mark, thanks for joining. Dan, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to whatever topics that we uh, delve into. I, I'm, it's it's a fascinating time in college sports, and there's a lot of different angles that uh, that we can play. So I appreciate you having me on. So I, I guess before we start getting into the Gonzaga-centric stuff, let's talk about the USC-UCLA kind of dynamic in Southern California. They're both going to the Big Ten I personally don't like the move. I think when when you look at the Pac-8, then the Pac-10, then the Pac-12, you know, these are your two of your flagship brands. You let them leave. How did that come about? Was it a shock? Was it a surprise? What is the thought now a year or so after it's been announced? Yeah, I mean, on a personal perspective, I mean, it's obviously very disappointing that we grew up uh, believing that the pac 10 uh, and then the Pac-12 was a power five conference that it was here to stay. Uh, gross mismanagement um, in, in the uh, Pac-12, I think was, you know, a big reason for the move. Um, you know, and again, I think that it would be better if we kept the status quo, uh, but we also have to recognize that the college sports landscape is, you know, changing at such a rapid rate and, you know, the cost of doing business just gets um, incrementally bigger and higher and, and you have to adjust. And, you know, unfortunately, the powers that be at both those institutions felt that it was in their long term best interest. I have no doubt for basketball and football, it's going to be um, smooth sailing. There's going to be a lot of money that's going to be coming into the coffers of those schools that, uh, you know, move up to a higher revenue conference. Uh, you know, I just, you hope that they took into account the, you know, the needs of all the athletes that they're servicing, you know, the, the non-revenue producers um, and just, you know, what it does for travel, uh, the disruptions in uh, their academic careers and everything else. So um, again, you know, I mean, this is, you know, where we are in college sports. It is a cold, oftentimes heartless business. And you know, we're just going to have to to adjust and just wanting to make sure that um, athletes that, uh, you know, we care about have a seat at the table, that their needs are being met. Um, and that, you know, we get out of this whole world, and I think this will bring into the conversation NIL, just the idea of here are the rules. If you want to play college sports, you must live by them. I think that we're now, uh, you know, reimagining where college sports is and what role college athletes should play in this multi-billion dollar enterprise. You used a word, adjust, that kind of... Uh struck me really quickly in that answer. 
you know, I, I think everybody has to adjust in this new world of college sports, athletic directors, coaches. I know you don't like the term student athletes, so college athletes have to adjust. Fans have. I always to... appreciate you, Dan, but uh, you're you're a quick study. <laughs> uh, how do you truly adjust when things are changing so quickly? And that's the you know the the crux of everything that we're dealing with. The NCAA and that's Indianapolis headquarters and the thousand plus um, NCAA members. The DNA that they have uh, created throughout their system and the way that they designed it is that college athletes are not members of the NCA infrastructure. They don't have legitimacy in uh, the governance structure. And so that really puts uh, old line uh, athletic administrators in a place where they're having trouble going back to the word, adjusting. And, and so those of us that see the value in creating more of a partnership between uh, the NCAA, their members, um, and now the athletes to give them a, a, a way that they can have what they deserve. And again, I, we don't know what all of that looks like, but for the NCAA's 120-year history, it's basically been unilaterally just determine what they get. And that is, you know, for a while it was tuition, room and board, and then uh, 10 years ago, we got the full cost of attendance stipends, and there was always this push to you know, continue to expand their rights and where the NCA landed on because they wanted to keep that whole status that athletes are students, not employees, uh, that they want to make sure that athletes have the ability to now capitalize off of their name, image, and likeness. And so it's not a perfect solution by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but you know that it, it opens the door for furthering the cause of what will lead to athletes, in my estimation, having a legitimate seat at the bargaining table so that we can figure out uh, what would be an equitable share of all the revenue that's coming in. And, you know, and I, again, I think there's a lot of people that talk about, oh, you know, this is exactly the opposite of what college athletics stands for. And again, I'm now I'm a broken record, adjust. The world of college athletics, they told us, was going to fall off its axis when athletes got paid uh, for name, image, and likeness. It was going to hurt the non-revenue sports. It was going to hurt female athletes. Uh, a year and a half, almost two years into NIL, it hasn't been anywhere close to that. It has been a win-win for all parties uh, in, this, in this brave new world of NIL. I think it's fair to say certain athletes have been paid in football in basketball for years but it's been under the table nil has brought it to the light and it makes a little bit more of a open sourced process i guess you could say um it, what what is the next step because i've i, I have said since this was announced it's going to take take a couple years to flush out what a going rate for a quarterback is or a left tackle or in basketball, a point guard or center on a high level team versus a mid-major. 
what what's the next steps? Is it unionizing? Is it is it open? Like I don't know if open source is the right word when you say contracts have to be able to be presented where everybody can see it, kind of like in professional sports. What are the next steps? Yeah, and I mean, I guess the next steps would be sort of just to get that historical perspective of how the NCA envisioned NIL. So remember, they said, you know, the the test for NIL would be that, it, that there was no inducements to sign with the school, um, no pay for play, and there had to be a quid pro quo. In other words, that if you were uh, accepting money from a brand, that you would have to provide real bona fide NIL. Uh, so in, in effect, what the NCA cleverly did was they sort of took all the meat off the bone of all the revenue that college sports generates, which is television revenue, ticket sales, and uh, shoe deals. And they stripped that away from what NIL would be. And then they pushed uh, what they thought NIL should be taking place outside of the athletic department. That's you know what I think many of us have called real NIL. And, and that's awesome. The ability to use your name, image, and likeness to promote a product or service and earn whatever the, the market rate is for that. Uh, so you know, two years into NIL, where do we land? There is still that bona fide NIL that we love, uh, but there is sort of that element through the collectives that would definitely, if you held it up to the light of day um, and you didn't want to do that wink, wink, uh, <laughs> would be pay for play. And, and so somehow it's, uh, it's test. And it's one of those things where, you know, that's not my issue to decide. I love when, when revenue from big time college athletics uh, flows in fair share to those you know that are helping to generate it, that's the uh, the labor pool, the, the you know the, the college football players, basketball players. Now we're seeing women's uh, sports really emerge. I, I mean, women's softball is on television all the time. Uh, the the crowds are enormous. Uh, women's basketball, the final four this year was unbelievable. So again, we're not saying that you have to pay them, but if we took away these artificial barriers, what is it that athletes would be paid uh, in, in this open sourced, open market environment? And I think that we're, we're getting to some of that through the collectives, but it's still a really uh, cumbersome process that is fraught with NCAA rules uh, at some point, and I'm not a legal or, or tax expert, uh, but I have to believe that the IRS is going to take a look and see, uh, you know, does this really pass uh, the test for those collectives that have been set up as uh, nonprofits? And is this a bona fide use of our tax code uh, to pay athletes six figures? And then, you know, the, the, the quid pro quo would be, uh, you know, doing different community service projects, visiting uh, sick patients, all really good, but but just a bizarre way to put money in the in the hands of athletes. So and then I think that again, the changing landscape, at some point, you know, it seems like we would all be better off if we could uh, relocate this type of 
um, NIL activity within the confines of an athletic department uh, where it's established that you can donate uh, to academic institutions, get your tax right off. Um, this has been going on for 100 plus years and uh, whatever scrutiny that the IRS has placed on uh, collectives, I don't think that we have that problem. So I, I do think that at some point that if we just keep trying to operate the collectives outside the athletic department, um, I don't know how it sustains itself either as a nonprofit where it could invite IRS scrutiny or as a for-profit entity and those who support their favorite programs would have to do it without uh, the, the benefit of a tax donation. You bring up interesting points, you, you know, like, is it a taxable donation? Is, is it just hiring somebody? Uh, th these are all things that I don't think the average fan expects uh, or, or thinks about when they see these high dollar numbers that say an Alabama quarterback gets or Hunter Dickinson uh, gets to go from Michigan to Kansas uh, in basketball, even though Michigan is a very good basketball program. He didn't make very much money considering his, I, I, my perceived value of what he brought to that university. When you look at the overall landscape, is there a certain school, an athletic department, or a community that is doing things maybe differently, uniquely, or better than anybody else? And I think that that's the problem that everybody's having with NIL is it's not one size fits all. Uh, and, and let me back up for a second, because, I, you know, it, NIL is not just about uh, revenue maximization today. There's a lot of other factors that uh, I think smart athletes and their families are uh, factoring into in terms of their decision making. So to the extent that, um, you know, some of the upstart programs, it does level the playing field to a certain extent because they now have the opportunity to throw uh, big bucks at young athletes um, as an inducement, uh, even though it's you know not uh, necessarily within the bounds of NCA rules, but they can do that. Uh, another school would have different priorities. They would sort of view what they're doing as you know a component of the overall college experience. So they may not throw the big bucks, but when you factor in all of the aspects of why you would pick a, a particular institution. The academics, the athletic development, the ability to get exposure, the network for their sport and beyond um, plays you know, a, a huge role in this. So I think that we're just seeing a lot of uh, bizarre uh, outcomes because some you know, students come from a situation where they're able to sort of see the bigger picture and that's awesome. And some others, and there would be no judgment if somebody is, you know, offered hundred thousand from one school and five hundred thousand dollars from another institution, and they take the money. There again, these are all these are all situations and scenarios that uh, you know get into the mix because we've now not artificially uh, determined that the value of the athletes would be. Uh, their scholarship and, and and everything else that that goes along with it, because now there's that element of the open market, and these markets 
um, on, a, on a micro level change from institution uh, to institution. And so again, I think that the public doesn't necessarily understand or appreciate that these are heady times for college athletes. And, you know, just you hope that they're getting good information that um, if they're offered big money, that they have somebody that is on their side, whether it's a lawyer or an agent that is protecting their legal and financial interests and making sure that this stuff is memorialized in writing so that there's, uh, you know, some teeth in these contracts. Because I think that that's, you know, another fallout is that we're hearing reports of promises being made and then they get on college campuses and, you know, it's, it hasn't been well documented, and you know now they're at the mercy of these collectives that you know have, have had a very short uh, lifespan. And you know who's guaranteeing the collective revenue that has been promised? So again, uh, you know th this upends a lot of what college athletics has been about historically. Uh, and in some ways, I'm here for the drama. I feel like that we can deal with it. Yeah, um, it's fun to follow. It, it's fun to follow. And it's going to lead to, it's already led to some amazing outcomes um, in the NIL space and the athletes using the money, uh, the platform, all the things that come with it to further it, their interests, whether it's in the community, supporting causes, taking care of teammates, um, starting to bring in enough revenue where you can save and invest and getting a head start on uh, wealth building is an unbelievable um, advantage for anybody in their 20s. Uh, but it's very rare to be able to make that kind of money early on. Um, so again, you hope that they're making good decisions. I've talked a lot and tweeted about just this paternalistic view where well college athletes are too young they're not prepared they're not experienced and and, and my response to that is too bad i mean th these are these are real life decisions there will be some mistakes that will be made and there will be some unfortunate outcomes but i think that you know athletes their families the institutions the coaches i think are quick studies in recognizing that they need to step up. They need to understand the world that they now inhabit is different. Um, it comes with greater responsibilities. Uh, it, there's opportunities to really make some decisions that will help them uh, in the present um, and for the long term. And so to the extent that they don't squander these opportunities and they make good decisions, I think that that's going to be the majority. There will be some athletes who do some really stupid things. Um, I've certainly, you know, written books and uh, have geared a lot of my financial education around pulling back the curtains on this industry and giving them the tools that they can make better decisions. But again, we can't protect everybody. Um, and, and, and I don't I think it was always convenient that, well, the 18 to 22 year olds aren't prepared. So we're just going to determine for their own best interest that, you know, we're not going to give them um, any pocket change to. Uh, do with what they want. Uh, so here we are. Well, you've talked about the kind of overall landscape, but you've also mentioned the word microclimate or micro market. Sorry. So I, I view Gonzaga as a micro market, to be honest with you. This is a Gonzaga centric 
uh, podcast through Gonzaga Nation SI. Um, Gonzaga is unique in that they are a national brand in a smaller market. The WCC isn't necessarily a small league. They're a very legitimate league, but they're not quite the Big 12. They're not quite the Pac-12, even though we've already discussed the, the, the struggles they've had you know, the, the, the big 10, et cetera, where do you, as kind of someone who looks at the overall lay of the land NIL, where do you see Gonzaga falling in this? Where are their opportunities? Where are their weaknesses? Uh, where can they capitalize? I think that, you know, Gonzaga is such a unique situation. It's almost like the green Bay Packers of college basketball, uh, that there's such a rabid fan base. There's such uh, a culture of competing at the highest level within um, a conference that's not considered a power five. And, and so, to, you know, to the extent that uh, there's a lot of conversations of, you know, do you go left, do you go right, do you go straight, do you try to, uh, you know, chase, uh, you know, something that's bigger or are you comfortable, you know, uh, where, you know, what you've done in the past and that it is built for whatever times uh, that we are in and however things are changing that, you know, Gonzaga, Gonzaga has the ability to adapt uh, without necessarily doing something that would be along the lines of radical change. So again, I, there, was, there was a book uh, by William Goldman, Adventures in the Screen Trade, and it was just about like, how do you predict uh, the future, what movies are going to be successful, what should be green, green lit, what should they pass on. And William Goldman, who uh, was a well-known uh, screenwriter, producer, director, wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, Princess Bride, 40 years in the screen trade, and he came up with his greatest takeaway in this whole world was nobody knows belief. Uh, and so, you know, to the extent that uh, you know, I, I I mean, it's really difficult because things are happening so quickly uh, at the institutional level, at the conference level with realignment, um, and then at the NCA level, trying to figure out, you know, what is the best course forward? Uh, is it federal legislation, which I'm completely against? Um, I don't think that if I was a handicapped or back to predictions, uh, I don't think that in its uh, present iteration of what we've heard there, the NCA is lobbying for, uh, will make it. And so now we're left with a patchwork of, of state laws and I'm fine with that. Again, I mean, there, there's, there's chaos that's coming from this. Uh, can we come up with a better system? I, I think that we can, my personal preference is that it'll be more along the lines of um, athletes having a legitimate seat at the bargaining table, whether it's pay for play. Not that there's anything wrong with that phraseology, um, that they are providing valuable services and that they should be compensated for it, whether it's done on an individual basis or collectively. And that, that sort of opens up that can of worms of, of athletes being treated as employees. And there's you know, from my perspective, a lot of value in making sure that, you know, we're not just creating the system that denies the realities of what's going on. So um, as far as, I mean, what's going on at the school that you love and, I mean, you, you know, have has given you so much, 
like I think that the people who are running it are smart enough to sort of figure out where it's changing and who they are, what's their DNA. And, you know, I don't think that you ever go to a, you know, a school like Gonzaga uh, for the, for the, for the academics and the basketball, if it's transactional, but this is really, I mean, a perfect example of long-term decision-making mm -hmm. and the value of a degree the value of playing at the highest level for uh, a program that you know has a proven track record for developing basketball players to play in the NBA, to play overseas. Um, so again, I don't think they have to pay top dollar. They're going to do what they can to support their athletes, and you know recognize that that's just one component of the entire package that were that that would be offered to. To, uh, prospective college athletes that are looking at Gonzaga versus uh, a Pac-12 school, Big 12, ECC, SEC. And I and again, I think it's, you know, it's, it has been compelling in the past. And I believe, not that I, I mean, going back to the William Goldman line, um, I, you know, I mean, there's going to be some crazy things that are going to happen. But I think that the uh, the blue blood programs. We can have another interesting conversation of is Gonzaga basketball a blue blood uh, for the purposes of this conversation and the audience that we serve? I think it really has over the last 20 years been unbelievably competitive. And I don't think that that's going to change one bit, no matter what happens in the NIL landscape in the conference uh, realignment world. You're going to be good. You make some interesting points in regards to the overall view of Gonzaga with, you know, and the way you put it was interesting because I don't think a lot of people look at NIL as just money, right? But I think in a player's in this day and age, you have to look at what you talked about, the academic, the future uh, networking possibilities, the ability to, to get to your aspirations of probably playing in the NBA. Most guys that if you're going to go to a, a high level program, you think you're going to get there. So you tie all these things together, but you also have to kind of have an NIL number that if I can get close to this during this stage of my career, it's worth it. And then you balance it out and you figure out what makes sense. Um, but when, when you look at the overall gist of college athletics, when you look at, location academics nil if you had a son or daughter right now that was making a decision is there a school that stands out to you you know it's interesting i mean there's schools that i root for i'm a season ticket holder uh for ucla basketball uh i've bought the nil experience at usc annenberg uh i i think that you know, there's, you know, back to the sort of the whole concept that there's no one size fits all. There's, you know, I mean, there, there's so many different factors. I've had conversations with people that, you know, had UCLA on their radar and it just was not a good fit. Um, you know, so that there's just so many different aspects. Obviously, I like forward thinking um, athletic administrators. I like schools that support the college athlete, uh, whether it's with regard to, to NIL, whether it's with regard to, uh, you know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? 
uh, in the college athletic experience. So, you know, you can go to a school that I hold near and dear, but you can get, uh, you know, a coaching staff that's uh, in turmoil, a coaching staff that is not a good fit. So I hate when people ask me questions and I'm evasive, but I just don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. So I'm going to leave you with one last question uh, and maybe at some point later this summer, because as we said throughout this conversation, NIL is constantly changing, right? I'd love to have you on later this fall as we get closer to the basketball season and we see how some of the football stuff has played out because Sometimes transfers put their name in the portal because the NIL market, unfortunately, isn't working the way they want. I don't agree with that, but that's just my prerogative. But uh, my last question for you, Mark, is this. Professional sports, they all have a players association, a union. Is college athletics moving in that direction? Does it need to move in that direction to protect some of these student athletes or give them a little bit more guidance or maybe help? prepare them for five, six, seven years down the road when they're no longer in college? So at one point during this conversation, I know I referred to the chaos and that it's okay to uh, you know, have that as an alternative to uh, the unilateral decisions that were made in the best interest of the institution um, and the athletic department and the coaches. Uh, and so then you know, so that's NIL 1.0. It's still not perfect. Uh, but as we move forward, you know, what would be you know, the best resolution that would take into account all the various stakeholders? And so you know, one of the things that I think that with you know, NIL, that we've seen some really positive outcomes um, along the lines of you know, uh, an elite player that tests the NBA waters, um, and then realizes that um, you know um, he can make uh, several hundred thousand dollars in the uh, women's basketball landscape. It's like no question. I mean, in terms of um, you know why would you leave yeah. uh, women's college basketball for a dramatic pay cut? Um, and so the idea of NIL or a, a mechanism to compensate college athletes to you know keep them in school longer is a awesome outcome of the changing landscape uh, when it comes to the transfer portal and the perceived ac- um, epidemic which I completely reject I, th- I, I I've published stats that show that uh, college basketball players transfer at a rate lower than the general student population. Really? I had no idea. Cause I, I, I was a player who transferred. It worked out unbelievably well for me at the time I transferred. It was not normal, but I did not know the stat that you just mentioned. So, you know, the idea that uh, college students who stay at one institution perform better because all the academic credits, you know, don't have to transfer along with it, keeps them on track to graduate. Uh, You know, certainly the optimal outcome of when a a student selects a college is that he or she would stay there for four or five years. But we also recognize that the transfer rate among all students is fairly high. Now, 
schools push back on that because there's such an investment um, in a college athlete and keeping them um, there. And so, you know, the idea, this, this goes back to in the past, there was uh, the ability to transfer was predicated on uh, sitting out a year, the schools would have to grant you access and they could uh, steer you away from schools that they didn't want you to attend. Uh, but, you know, this is really the interesting argument that the NCAA used so effectively for, you know, 70, 80 years, which is the college athletes are students, not employees. Well, students have the absolute right to transfer without penalty. Um, and, and so at some point, the NCAA and their membership made the determination that we have we we have to uh, keep them as students and give them the same rights as every other student, which definitely opened up the floodgates. So let's tie this back to the fact that we're now recognizing that the world of college athletics is going to be just fine if athletes are a part of this you know economic largesse, and so. You know, now we don't have to treat them like students, and we can treat them like employees. So then, uh, what I what I think would be fascinating, not just as an incentive to keep athletes in school longer, but to retain them uh, through some form of an employment contract. And so that, that could be multiple years. So if you want to go to um, a particular school, they may not be offering a one-year contract. They might say, we want two, three, or four years, and in exchange, you're going to receive a, um, a fair amount of money, and you know there's going to be some restrictions that would be uh, along the lines of non-compete, the inability to uh, you know, sign with another institution because you are under contract with that institution. Um, and again, I think that that would be an amazing outcome um, if they did want to transfer um, or turn pro, maybe there's some form of a buyout uh, so that the school that um, is not, that offered a multi-year contract and is not getting their services for those number of years can um, adjust and that they, you know, that there's, you know, just like a coach that leaves for another institution that they can, um, you know, receive a, a buyout settlement and that would be perfectly fine. Those are some fascinating and great ideas. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be, I would imagine that's eye-opening for for a lot of our listeners, uh, some of the stuff that you shared, especially at the end, because uh, I hadn't looked at it in that way in regards to the student transfer uh, versus college athlete <laughs> transfer rates. So that's some really great stuff. Mark, I appreciate the time at some point. Uh, maybe end of the summer, early fall. I'm going to have to have you on again because uh, you are uh, obviously well-versed in NIL, in uh, college athletes' rights or ideas and options and how to move this thing forward. I really appreciate the time and uh, thank you very much. No, thank you. Uh, I feel like we were scratching the surface. So if that leads to uh, the second conversation a couple of months later, it would be my pleasure. I enjoyed it.